Thank you, Floyd and Millie. Don't believe I've ever heard that one before. But a lot of truth in there. When I see the blood, I will pass over you the Passover meal symbolic of the blood of Christ. That's what we all want to be aware of when we have to face the Lord is the blood of Christ. Will we be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Well, it's good to be back after being away, not quite for a week. Um, We packed a lot in, but I appreciate all your prayers as we uh, made our way to the Gospel Coalition Conference. We crammed into the Roberts van like sardines, the six of us, the Mosses, the Abernathys, the Montanias, and made our way uh, the rest of the way across Virginia, all the way across the mountains of West Virginia, all the way through Ohio, and a few hours into Indiana to Indianapolis. It took us about 11 and a half hours to get there and 12 hours to get home. And um, it was a, it was a grand time. It was refreshing in the Lord in the sense of uh, being immersed in the scriptures. It was not refreshing in the sense of relaxation because we didn't really even have time to relax. The conference was packed from morning to night. We didn't get back really till nine or ten clock at night many times, um, but we were very, very well fed. Some of you have asked, do we get to hear some testimonies of how the conference was? And you do not. <laughs> not today. Um, I tried to get a few. I, I gave some of the folks last minute warning, say, by the way, you have about five minutes to give a testimony of the conference. And they kind of got that frightened look in their face. And I said, just kidding. But I will say that maybe after Holy Week, really, after Palm Sunday and Easter, the Sunday after that, guys, if you could be prepared to share a little something, because we went with the intention to be fed ourselves, but also, God, what are you teaching us as leaders that we can bring home to the church? That was our we just prayed and prayed and prayed that all of us. And so that'll give us a few weeks to process what we heard. And then come back and report it to you. So that's kind of an assignment there. You have a a few Sundays to prepare for that. And I do want to say thanks to Dwight and the team. It's, It's such a pleasure to know that you can leave a congregation, you know, the the sheep, so to speak, and they're just in great hands and to know that they're going to be fed the word of God. They're going to be looked after and cared for. It's a great honor to be able to know that you can leave. And I don't know that anybody worried how things are going to go Sunday. Are we going to come back to a split church? Is anybody going to anybody even going to be there the following Sunday? So excellent job. Heard wonderful reports of an outstanding service. So thank you. Appreciate your willingness to serve. And this is Holy Week. Um, so this is the this is the big week. If you're a believer, this is your big week. This is the week where Christians rally around their savior, Jesus Christ. And if you look in the Gospels, you're reading along in the Gospels and you find that a disproportionate amount of material all points to just not the whole life of Christ, but to one week of Christ, one week of his life. And that communicates to us how important it is for us to understand what happened in just that one week of the 33 some years of Jesus's life. And so as a church, we also just take this one week to concentrate 
on Christ. And it's called Holy Week. And, of course, we open it. Well, we've, we've been celebrating Lent, looking up for this week. And then we have Palm Sunday today, which celebrates the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, where the palms were waved and he was hailed as their king. And they said, Hosanna, which means basically God save us. God save us. So he was hailed as their king and as their Messiah for that moment of his life. And then this Thursday, we celebrate our Monday Thursday service where Jesus in the upper room gives his new commandment that actually really isn't new. But you'll hear about that this Thursday night here as we come together as saints and worship the Lord during Holy Week, during Maundy Thursday. We combine Maundy Thursday and Good Friday in one service. Um, so I invite you to join us for that time of contemplative worship. The sanctuary won't really look like it looks right now, Thursday night. It'll take on a different persona because we want to concentrate on the cross. And then a week from today, we will rejoin once again and celebrate the fact that we worship a resurrected God. Not just the one and only God, capital G, as Kevin reminded us, but a living God, a resurrected God. And therefore, we have life and we'll be full of life next Sunday. So that's what is on our plate for this Holy Week. And for right now, the Holy Spirit, the living Spirit of God, has us as a body uh, on the side of a mountain, if you will. And we are listening to a sermon. And this sermon has been delivered to us by Jesus Christ. And this is a sermon about the king and his kingdom. And it's a, it's a challenging sermon. It's the Beatitudes. And you know it's challenging. It cuts right to the chase. It, it's like Jesus peers right into our hearts and tells us, like it is, and really it helps us to know about the kingdom, and it helps us to know if we are in or if we are out. And it tells us what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God that Christ has ushered with his presence. So we open the Beatitudes with being poor in spirit. Um, I've said that one pastor likens them to rings. That you would swing from suspended from the ceiling because one propels you to the next. We need to be foundationally poor in spirit. Then we mourn over our sin and then we are meek where we just trust in God. And today we will look at yet another beatitude. John Piper likes to look at the beatitudes and call them kind of a sandwich because you start out uh, with the lo the lo this piece of bread and this piece of bread. But it's the kind of the negative things that we are the first four um, being broken and poor. But then we see the growth in the next four and it ends with persecution. So the Beatitudes are all the things that we try to preserve ourselves against. All the things that we think we need to avoid in life, like being broken, like mourning, like long suffering and persecution. And Jesus says, no, actually properly understood. These are the very things that you need to be blessed down to the bottom of your shoes. So that's what we're looking at this morning as we contemplate these beatitudes. They're about kingdom happiness. They're about the things of God. Now, let's just say. 
just briefly, let's just say, wait a minute, you know, somebody might be thinking, I'm not really interested in being persecuted. I'm not really interested in taking a deep look at my heart to see how broken I am, to see how beggarly I am before God. I have evaluated the world and life, and I think I know what it takes to seek after things and make myself happy. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fill myself with the things that I want. Forget about the righteousness. Forget about the kingdom of God. Where, forget about the sermon, where would that leave us? And Jesus is going to address that this morning. Because what you will find is, yes, we can seek after, and if it's within our power, grab anything we want out of this life, and all of us will still end up at the same spot. And that is called the spot of being hungry. It's called, I'm still not satisfied. So Jesus is going to address that with us. This morning, the benefits of remaining proud, the benefits of being self-absorbed in this world will only leave us unsatisfied and hungering for more. It's this nagging realization that no matter how much you gain in life, if God is not in it, there is still something missing and our souls will not be quiet. Our souls will continue to tell us. Inadvertently, you need something else in your life that you do not have. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Augustine, the church father, early church father, said there is something about humanity. There is something in our spirits that make us unsettled. That make us or cause us to always be longing for something else as if there's something, whatever it is, it's the very thing we need. Whatever it is, it's the very thing that is missing. Some people have said that we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. It is basically a tendency to stay hungry for something. God had the prophet Isaiah in 55 verses 2 through 3 say this to his people. He asked them a question. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And then Jeremiah piggybacks that same theme in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where God says through this prophet, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters, evil number one. And what was the second evil? And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Can't help but to think about Mick Jagger's words. I try and I try and I try and I try. He made a lot of money singing that song, but he can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) Even he knows. You see, perhaps there are some here this morning that understand this. And we've we've hewn out our cisterns, we've carved them, we've carved them wide to fit all the stuff we think we need, maybe deep 
so that we, we, they can be bringing, brimming over with that which we have decided will satisfy our hearts and our souls, will make us feel whole, will make us feel good. And yet, no matter how big we make them, it just we always seem to, in the end, wind up thirsty and hungry for something again. There's just whatever. We've got all these things in there and there's still something missing. And yet we feel like we can't fit anything else in there. What could that something be and our soul just won't be quiet and it keeps telling us you're hungry for something something is missing in your life you have not found it yet if that is us and we have not found it yet i pray that today will be the day that we will partake of christ and fellowship and be satisfied with the bread of life So Jesus, in this beatitude, offers the possibility of being satisfied, which means he knows that he is standing before and preaching before many, many people who are very likely not satisfied. Many people who will reflect and think about the state of their souls. And I think that one of the main reasons that people are not happy or not blessed in the way that Christ is trying to rally us around and to give us an understanding of is because perhaps due to what the world says or what people think Scripture says, they think it says, seek after happiness. Happy are those who seek after happiness. And that's a lie. That's another trail that's off the beaten path because anything that we seek after other than God is going to leave us unsatisfied. See, happiness is not something that you seek in and of itself. Happiness is a byproduct of the good things that we seek in Christ. We seek, that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. We, we seek these things that are kingdom-minded. And as we do this, the blessedness falls from heaven upon us. But if you only seek after happiness for yourself, well, that's just another form of being self-absorbed. That's just another form of cutting ourselves short of what God has for us in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6.33, it's a matter of priorities. What are we to seek if we are not to seek happiness? Isn't happiness a good thing? Yes. The scripture tells us to seek righteousness. Matthew 6:36, Matthew 6:33. Jesus tells us here in just a chapter away. But there's one thing we're supposed to seek first. I know about all your worries and concerns about a life. I know about all your needs. It's in this context that Jesus is talking about. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. You see how we seek God and these things fall into place as a byproduct of keeping our priorities straight. Keeping Christ front and center. Keeping Christ as king of our hearts. C.S. Lewis says that if there is you've you've been out there, perhaps, and you've sought and you've tried. And if you find that there is no experience, no matter how far you go or how much money you spend or how much you how much energy you expend, if you go out there and you find that there is nothing in this world that quite does it, that quite satisfies you. There's a good probability that you were made for another world. And that you will only find it in that other 
world. And Jesus is trying to refocus our minds on that other world. Blessed or happy. Favored are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. Well, we live, as you know, in the wealthiest nation in this world. We live in the wealthiest country that has ever existed in the history of mankind. You're living it, you. And so probably most of us have never nearly starved to death. We might have thought we did. We missed a meal. and nearly starved to death. Uh, but perhaps some of us, and I'm sure all of us at one time or another, have experienced hunger pains. Perhaps sometimes very intense hunger pains. The kind of hunger that will even make us hangry. Are you hangry? It's kind of a neat word. It's a combination between I'm so hungry that I'm grumpy. Keep your distance. Give that person food and their countenance changes. Then they're happy. It's interesting that Jesus, now he's talking to a people, he's talking to people that are not in the, in the wealthiest nation. They're not in that blessed season. They're under the domain of Rome. And some of these people are very poor. And some of these people, uh, hunger perhaps is a lifestyle for them. And he takes this very real situation that everybody has experienced to some degree or another. And he says, do you know that hunger? Have you ever really experienced what it's like? Your stomach is just gnawing away at you and it's it's purposely causing pain because it's communicating to you. You need to be refueled. You need something in your body from head to toe to keep you going, to give you the energy, to keep your mind focused on the right things. And he takes that same example. He says, now apply that to the priority of righteousness. Have you ever hungered for righteousness like you've hungered for that big, thick, juicy steak? Like you've hungered for that next meal? Maybe you've camped or you've roughed it for a while out on the mission field and the food just isn't the same and you really are hungry. Are we hungry for righteousness like that? We know what it's like to be hungry. And Jesus says, what, what, what is your hunger like when it comes to the area of Righteousness. So are we? Are we a people characterized as being hungry for righteousness? If I said, are we a world, are we a people, a culture that are characterized as being hungry for righteousness? Most of us would probably say absolutely not. We are not a people. We are not a culture that has righteousness as a priority. But I, I agree with uh, Timothy Keller that says, yes, we are all a people that hunger for righteousness. It's just on two different levels. I think you will see where he's coming from. When we think of this word righteousness, what do we immediately think of? But I picture a, a person that's very maybe godly, a person that's very morally upright there. Very obedient to the commands. They're, they're righteous. They're moral. They're law abiding. And that is a definition of righteousness in a true sense. But the word actually has a broader meaning than that. And that's what I want to spend a little time exploring this morning. 
The word righteousness really is rightness. It's, it's being right with something. That's how you become righteous with Christ. It means you are right with him. So in a broader sense, on this level, righteousness means rightness with things. You want to be in good standing with things. You want to be approved. You want by somebody or something. You want to be received. You want to be accepted. You want to be relationally favored. And that's how we know we're right with somebody because if we're not, there's friction and there's anxiety because the desire of our heart is to be in good standing with this thing or this someone, this person. And if we're not, there's friction. We, and we have this sense of when we are right, when there's rightness between us relationally. So I think, in other words, we all have this standard, uh, right or wrong, we all have this standard of what it means to be in good relation with the things that are the most important to us, the things that we think will bring satisfaction and comfort to our souls. There's a standard of good relation. And when it gets right down to it, of course we want to be in right standing and good relation to the things that are most important to us. So right or wrong, that is a way to look at the things that we seek after. We don't always seek after being in right standing with the right things, but we, in our own minds and hearts, have an idea of the things in life that we need to be right with because those are the things we say to ourselves, that's going to satisfy me. If I can get this right, if I can get that right, that's going to satisfy me because I've been accepted. I've been approved. I've had that nod that I want. So we apply for a job perhaps that we really want or we apply for a school that we really want to to get into or some kind of team that we want to be on or a club that we want to be in or a, a group of friends that we want to be a part of or we have just asked this person that we've been interested in for some time now and we have asked them out on a date and so what we are doing this because we think we need these things in our lives and we want it to go right with us. And what we're really waiting for anxiously as we apply for these things and seek after these things is we're waiting for a verdict. We're waiting. Or am I in or out? Do you approve of me? Do you accept me? Because that's what my soul is telling me I need. And I want to be in right standing. And so when we apply for these kind of things, we in one sense wait on pins and needles. Am I in or out? Do I have the nod? And of course, if we get accepted into the things that are important to us, we're elated. We're ecstatic. It's wonderful. I got the, I got the nod of approval. I'm in. Yes. Now I'm in good standing and I'm right. If we do not get that nod of approval, then we feel that terrible thing called rejection. I'm not one of them. Things are not right between us. I've been disapproved. I've been unfavored. So we have this standard of what it means to be right to the things that we think will bring our souls the comforts of life. Make us feel good. Make us feel good about ourselves. And so that is a definition really of rightness in a broader sense. 
And it's in that sense we are all seeking for righteousness. The difference comes in who we want to be in right standing with. That's the difference. So we all want to be in good relation with the things that we think will comfort our souls. The difference comes, difference comes in who will that be? Who in this life do we think will be that to us? And how does this apply to Jesus' teaching? Well, see, the way we, we get into the kingdom, Jesus is telling us, is that over time, perhaps suddenly or over time, little by little, it is God that becomes more and more important to us. It is God that now that we begin to see more than ever, he's popping up everywhere. And now the other things that we held once so dearly, as we sang this morning, they, they just don't matter as much anymore. And through a course of time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, now we just see in our minds and our hearts agree, you know what I really need? And now I see it. I need God. That's what I need. He's what's missing in my life. I see it now and I didn't see it before. And that's how we begin our entrance into the kingdom as the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to the really important things, to that other level of living that is above this world. Perhaps we see him. Perhaps we see a vision of him we never saw before. I didn't know there could be so much love out there. I want to be right with this God that I am starting to learn about. Or perhaps we want to be right with him, as was my case, because I fear him. I learn that he is a God of wrath. I look at my life. I think I got this big old target on my back because I am a big sinner. I want to be right with this God. I don't want to feel the wrath of Someone this powerful, but for whatever reason, God moves to the center from the fringes and he becomes important. So now you see where the Beatitudes come in, because in order to be right with this God who has just moved into the center of our lives, we have to be poor in spirit. Jesus says you got to take a good look into your own heart. You don't just get in. You don't just walk into a circle of friends. Something has to take place here. To get that nod of approval. There needs to be some knowledge of one another. And we have to look into our hearts. And when we look into our hearts. What do we see? We see poverty. We see that we're beggarly. We see that the very thing that we want is God. But the thing that repulses him the most is us. It's the sin in our hearts. So we see ourselves poor. And then we mourn over the fact that I cannot have the thing that has now moved into the center of my life because my sin is separating us from these things. And we mourn over the fact that that's who, is, that's who we are. But then we move into meekness where we begin to trust in this God. And then uh, we, we, we see that, you know, God, I don't have anything to offer you. I wish I did. I want to raise flags. I want to show you all my goodness, all the things that you love. I want to open up my shirt and my heart so you can see it all and just be immediately drawn to me. But when I open it up, all you see is sin. And so here I am. I'm beggarly. I'm poor. Uh, I just need your mercy to be right with you. But you want to be right with God. We realize that we're not, which means what? We're guilty. You know, part of understanding the verdict of guilty, part of understanding that you did not 
do not have God's nod of approval is what it takes to get in the kingdom. We can't get in the kingdom until we realize that we have sin to confess of. Till we realize that we possess that which keeps us out of the kingdom. Hence being poor in spirit and mourning over these things. A verdict of guiltiness. In fact, God is upset. God is angry. And I know it's not popular to talk about guilt in today's church. It's not popular to talk about anger in today's church. You don't hear a lot about God's anger and God's wrath these days. We've moved on from that. We've evolved as a culture. We're more loving and kind. I just don't talk to me about guilt. I don't want to come to church and get any negative vibes. I just want all positive world is hard enough as it is to talk to me about the God of love. That's what I need to hear. But is that even real? Is that even true? If you just stop a minute and think about is, is life is true love just gushy love? Is that what true love is? Does that work in your relationships? Does that work in real life? And that's how we want God to deal with us. We just want the love. We don't want the anger. What is true love? Well, have you ever really loved something to the best of your ability? I mean, you love it with all your heart and your mind. And you think I can't love you any more than I do right now. And then what happens when that person that you love so much begins to make life destroying decisions, begins to get in a cycle of bad, destructive habits, perhaps addictions, perhaps unwise decisions, perhaps terrible relationships. And what do you want to do? What happens to you when you love them so much and you see them destroying their lives? What do you want to do? You want to grab them and you want to shake them. You want to say, stop doing this to yourself. Can't you see you're a beautiful person? Stop doing this to yourself. Stop believing these lies. You're being sucked into darkness. You're being sucked in this path of evil that only sucks the life and the vibrancy out of you. You're, you're living under a cloud of deception. I want you to be the beautiful person that you are. Stop. You want to shake them. You want to wring their neck. If you're a parent, you know about this. If you're a spouse, you might know about this. Is it true love? Yes. God doesn't have to be either or love or angry or wrath. He has to be both because that's what true love is. It would be just indifferent if God, who is supposed to be so up there and holy, other and powerful, if he just let us do our own thing. But no, there's a standard of holiness for which love is built upon. There is a right and wrong and God gets upset when we do wrong because he loves us. He gets angry at us because he loves us. For God so loves the world that he gave his only son. So God cares about rightness, about holiness, about relationship. And he gets righteously angry. Timothy Keller um, once pastored a church in before he was so well known. Um, pastored a church in Hopewell, Virginia, of all places. And he tells this story to help us understand this concept. I remember an officer in my church in Virginia, a man I knew very, very many years, a marvelous man, one of the dearest men to my heart in this world. His youngest son was a mess, was in and out of trouble with the law. 
And many times I watched this man. I would visit the man at the jail when he was visiting his son. I went with that man to court once when his son was up for trial. In that man's heart, there were two things operating together. On the one hand, because he loved his son, he knew his son had to be punished. He knew there was no hope for his son if he wasn't punished. He knew the judge had to punish him. He was guilty. He knew there was no hope for society if he wasn't punished because the law has to be paid. And on the other hand, in this man's same heart was this tremendous desire for mercy for his son, for for freedom for his son. The love in his heart cried out for justice and mercy at the same time. It's not like there was a loving part of his heart that called out for mercy and a hating part of his heart that called out for justice. Real love always produces anger at sin. And if this is true on a human level, how much more on a divine level? As you think about the Father's standard of holiness and righteousness, and yet you think about His pure and perfect, unblemished love for people. To hunger and thirst after righteousness means that you get angry That sin and you realize it needs to be punished, even if it's in our own hearts and not in somebody else's. And we cannot come into the kingdom of God without having confessed this, having seen this about ourselves. You you can't come in. We got to own it. We got to admit it. We got to see God for who he is and see ourselves for who we are. Have you ever had that talk with God? Have you ever had that? Heart to heart talk with God where you realize, yeah, I'm out. Because of the way I think, because of who I am, I'm out. I'm a sinner. You're not front and center. But I want you to be. Confessed and begged for God's mercy upon a soul that's damned. That's a talk that needs to take place. I hope that... If there's somebody here that needs to have that heart-to-heart talk with God, it would take place today. So there's a sense in which we all thirst for right standing, but only the poor and the hungry in spirit will be in right standing with God. We'll get that nod. We'll get that verdict of approval that we are waiting for, and it's because of Christ. And it's a verdict that comes from heaven, not from man. Let me just... uh, quickly address something that I think needs to be said that we don't hear a lot about when we think about sin. We talk about sin a lot. We think about confession and repentance and we talk about that a lot. But there's something else that is involved in this idea of poverty of spirit and mourning and this idea of seeking after righteousness that I think begs our attention. And that is this, that a true believer does not just repent of his sins, A true believer repents of his righteousness. Say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Righteousness is a good thing. Yeah, it is. Good works and good deeds are a good thing to do in the sight of God. But we have to realize that what happens a lot of times as believers, we look or as we try to come into the kingdom, we look at our hearts and we say, yeah, I've got this bad thing and I admit it and I own it and this and this and this and I got to get them straight and I repent. But look what I can do for you, God. I very rarely miss a day of church. I'm on the council for charity. I'm a great husband, a wonderful father, 
I have done lots of good. I've read through the Bible five times as if these achievements just got us closer to God, as if these achievements just gained us the approval that he that we have been waiting for. That's called moralism. That's called another form of Pharisee. Yeah, I'm closer to God than you are because I do more works than you do. I reach out and serve others more than you do. That's not the gospel of Christ. That's work salvation. See, the true believer repents God and he cowers back in the corner like the beggarly, the beggarly spirit and the and the tax collector in the temple that's praying. He's he's too afraid to even look at God. He's too ashamed because of all the sin he sees in there. And the true believer is also ashamed of his good works because he realizes they don't measure up either. They fall way short. They don't even move the needle of righteousness as far as a heaven standard is concerned. And how many times do we repent of our sins and yet flaunt our good deeds as if that is what is going to get us in right standing, as if that's where the nod of God is going to come from? That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the nod of God comes from the righteousness of Christ. It's by grace. It's through faith in Christ alone. That's it. That's what we stand on. That's what we trust. That's what that merciful spirit that trusts in the Lord for all things, even God's timing, believes. That I am in right standing with my heavenly father, that the wrath has been removed because of the work of Christ, not because I tithe double this Sunday. In Christ alone. Well, what about my good works? You just shattered my life. So where the good works come into place? I mean, I am a pretty good husband. I am a pretty good father. And I very seldom miss a devotion or time with my Lord. Oh, good works have their place. Absolutely. James says, faith is a faith that works. Yeah. Works have their place. But here's how it works. And I recently read this by Dr. Brian Chappell. Uh, he has a new ministry. I think it's called Unlimited Grace. I recommend that to you. It's, it's small. He's just getting started. It's not like desiring God, but very, very sound. He was the president of Covenant Theological Seminary that I almost went to. He says this. God does not accept our good works because they're good. God accepts our good works because he's good. That's so profound. And he gives this illustration. When he was a kid, he and his father were cutting down a dead tree in the yard and a limb or something fell. And 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 the result was that to him as a little kid, a little boy, it looked like a horse figure. And so he takes this horse figure, piece of wood, branch, stump, whatever it was, something that got cut. And he says, this looks like a horse. And he takes it into the workshop. And the best that a little kid can do, he takes some nails and he pounds a few nails into it. And he's so proud of his work. And then he takes it to his father and he gives it to his dad as a gift. And he says, dad, here, it's a tie rack. And you can high, hang your ties on it. And, of course, by all standards, this was not craftsmanship. But what did his father do? Oh, he was so receiving of that gift. Why? Because it was 
the Tyrak of all Tyraks? No, because that's a good dad. And he takes it and he puts it in his closet and he hangs his ties on it. Because he's good and he's kind and he's gracious. It's just the kind of father he is. And so when we give to God and present to him our our labors and our sacrifices, they're good and they're pleasing to him. But not because they have attained this measure of righteousness. They fall short as well. They are good to him because he's so good. He's so kind. Yes, I receive that. I accept that. Thank you. I'm going to hang it in my closet up here in heaven so I can look at it every day. It's because God is good. Get the emphasis off of man and on to God. And that's the gospel. That's the true gospel. So let us not grow weary in doing good. For we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We are encouraged to do right. We encourage to do good. It's a, it's a, well, it just works. It works, but it doesn't save us. This is kingdom living. Knowing these kind of things is what Christ wants us to, to flesh out, to stand on, to believe. That's kingdom living. It's what he wants us to hunger for. It's what makes our souls happy. So that's an appetite for righteousness. And then lastly, the the fullness of righteousness. So what does all this mean? It means that when we receive the only verdict that really matters, the verdict from heaven where we get that heavenly approval and that nod. Yes, I approve you. You can come in, my son and daughter, with the full benefits of heaven's citizenship. Come and dine at my table. Come and let's do life together. Other opinions that we used to, 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 to anguish over, people's opinions don't matter as much because now we have the approval and the verdict from he who really only matters when it comes down to it. The other things might hurt a little bit. And life might not always go the way we think it ought to, but we bounce back because we know we are in right standing. We are in the, the good graces of he who has become the center of our lives. Our own righteousness may satisfy us and may impress others, but does not satisfy him. So we need his verdict and we want to thirst For his righteousness. Should we thirst to be morally good? Sure. We want to conform to the image of Christ. We want to be as good as we possibly can. We want to be as much like Jesus as we possibly can. But he accepts that effort because he's good. Not because we are so good. I want to close with another illustration. Forgive me for using Timothy Keller again, but I was in my research for this. He just happened to have the illustrations that I think really nailed it home. It's a little little lengthy, but we'll close with it, and I think you will find it well worth it. He takes actually this. He borrowed this from Becky Pippert's book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Perhaps you have that book. Becky Pippert is Pippert. 
Don't want to get that one wrong. She is a Christian speaker. And after one of her talks, a woman came up to say, I need to talk to you. And so she took her into a back room. And this is what this young lady said to her. Said, I was recently married. And then she said she was a member of a very, very conservative evangelical church. And she was marrying a handsome young man who also was a member of that church. And the two of them were considered leaders. And they were considered uh, shining lights in the church. And just about six months before they were to be married, uh, she discovered that she was pregnant by him. And they suddenly realized what that would mean. They realized what that would mean to their reputations. They realized what what they're going to have to uh, go through now in this very conservative evangelical church and what people would think about them and that they would realize, well, what you've been leading us in and what you've been preaching isn't what you're living. They realized that it would be a scandal and that the problems would never end. And so she decided to have an abortion. And so they're. They, they wanted to get married and they always wanted children and they expected to have them. And there was no reason in the world, of course, for her to have an abortion, no matter what your view of abortion is. She knew it was wrong. And she walked down the aisle that day, she said, on the day of her wedding. As she walked down that aisle, everybody was looking at her like the beaming bride. And she says to Becky Pippert, she says, as I walked down that aisle and I saw what other people were thinking of me, what I was saying to myself, and I just couldn't stop this voice from coming. But what I was hearing was, you murderer. You murderer. And the the voice spoke to her like that all the way down the aisle on her wedding day. You were so worried about, she's thinking to herself, you were so worried about showing these people what you really were. You were so afraid of being exposed that you would murder this life just so you wouldn't look bad. I know what you are, that voice said. God knows what you are. You murderer. So she comes to Becky Pippert and, and she says, I've confessed this thing a thousand times over and over again. And I'm just obsessed with it. I'm depressed. I'm emotionally a wreck. I don't know what to do. How could God possibly forgive me? I guess he's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. I don't know what to do. I'm beside myself. Becky Pippert has this idea that pops into her head suddenly and she swallows hard as she is Praying and speaking and thinking all at the same time. And she says this. My dear friend, Jesus Christ had to die for all our sins, sins of the religious and sins of the non-religious, sins of the Nazis and the victims, sins of the moral types and the immoral types. We are all responsible for the death of the only innocent man who ever lived. The sin that caused you to destroy this life was pride. And it was pride that destroyed Jesus Christ's life 2,000 years ago.
As Luther said, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. You, my friend, were already a murderer before this ever happened. And it was totally paid for long ago. Sure. So what happens to this woman? Keller says, did she suddenly say, no, you're making me feel worse? Oh, no, she got the point. She got it. She turned to Becky and she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're right. I always in my head believed I was a sinner and and my sins were responsible for the death of Christ. But now I see it. And, And I came To share my heart with you. To to tell you I did the worst thing imaginable. And you have just told me that I did something even worse. Than I ever imagined. I killed the son of God. And if that can be forgiven. Then anything can be forgiven. Why was she so depressed to begin with? She couldn't forgive herself, she said, because all along she thought she was a Christian. She intellectually believed in Christ. But her goodness was her how she presented herself to her conservative friends was really what she was leaning on for her right standing with God. She thought that's what it is. And I lost it. I'm no longer this good person. And I lost it and I don't know how to get on with life. So she intellectually believed it, but she was relying on her niceness as her salvation. And when she did this, it changed. She was no longer relying on her own righteousness. And the day Becky Pippert told her that she had done something worse and had been forgiven, suddenly she realized... And she began to hunger and thirst after Christ's righteousness. And all along, she was freed. Do you know when, you know, and it's, and it's where the Beatitudes take us. It, it keeps taking us to this place that we avoid and we don't want to go. But you know, you know when you feel the most accepted in life. You you know, you're in this place and you just can't feel any more loved and safe. It's when you're with a person that knows everything bad about you and still loves you. And Jesus, you know, there's there's something in us that remains insecure if we think, oh, My best friend, my spouse, they're going to find out about this thing and it's going to be that one thing they don't like about us and they're going to reject us and we won't have that nod of approval. And on the cross, God says, I've seen you at your worst and I accept you. The only thing you need to do is come and trust in Christ, repent of your sins. And come on, let's do life together. And I'm going to teach you how to be free and I'm going to teach you how to be happy. It's hard, yeah. 
Self-denial is hard. Going to these places that God calls us is hard. We don't, we don't want to naturally do it. And it takes a powerful act of God. Dying to self is hard. Because we're coming to Him and we're saying, I'm at your mercy. All these things I thought were going to satisfy me, don't. And I just realize that it's only you that can satisfy the hunger in my, my heart. I just realize it's only you that can save me. It's only you that can give me eternal life. I am completely at your mercy. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do. And it makes us very vulnerable. And that's what it takes to come into the kingdom. It says, I'm not in charge. God, you are everything. That's accepting the kingdom of heaven on the terms of mercy. And we relinquish it all. And so on the cross, Jesus says, I've seen you at your worst. I accept you. I receive you. Put your faith in me. So today is Palm Sunday. Today is a celebration of the triumphal entry of Christ as being hailed as the king. And I pray that if you do not have Christ today, that today will be your Palm Sunday. Today will be the day of the triumphal entry where the King of Kings comes into your heart. Perhaps sometime during this message, the Spirit of God has been speaking to you. And God, who was on the fringes, has just moved into the center. And you have come to the realization, He is what's missing. He is all that I need and I have to have Him. Be poor in spirit. Mourn over your sin. Confess it. Own it. And put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. It's your choice. And worship the Lord. And leave here with the only verdict that really matters. A nod of approval from the God of heaven. If you want to talk to me after the service, I'd love to pray that prayer with you. Or you can do it in the privacy of your own heart right now. But... You've got to tell me if that's what you do, because Christians get excited about others that have been forgiven for their sins because we know exactly how it feels. Let's make it our prayer. New Covenant Fellowship to hunger and thirst for righteousness. May God bless the preaching of his word.